Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode for Hillary 2017 of The Beacon, a podcast produced by Oxford International Relations Society. I'm your host, Dunya Habash, and this week we'll be taking a look at the Tunisian Revolution of 2011. On December 28, 2010, The Guardian released an article about a man setting fire to himself the previous week, sparking an uprising in Tunisia. The article recounts the story. 26-year-old Mohamed Bouazizi, living in the provincial town of Sidi Bouazid, had a university degree but no work. To earn some money, he took to selling fruit and vegetables in the street without a license. When the authorities stopped him and confiscated his produce, he was so angry that he set himself on fire. Rioting followed and security forces sealed off the town. On Wednesday, another jobless young man in Sidi Bouazid climbed an electricity pole, shouted, No for misery, no for unemployment, then touched the wires and electrocuted himself. On Friday, rioters in Menzil Bouazizin set fire to police cars, a railway locomotive, the local headquarters of the ruling party, and a police station. After being attacked with Molotov cocktails, the police shot back, killing a teenage protester. By Saturday, the protests had reached the capital, Tunis. What followed over the coming months should be familiar to most because of terms like Arab Spring and Jasmine Revolution. As we know, a wave of uprisings spread across the Middle East following the January events of 2011 in Tunisia. To understand what happened in Tunisia from the people's perspective during those early days, I spoke with three Tunisians who participated in the events in different ways. The first was Muntasir Adadi. He was a master's student studying in Tunis when he heard about the protests that were breaking out across the country. As I told you, it was on 9th of January, um... What was uh, like a shock for me is when uh, these people started to be killed, you know. So, and uh, I come from um, interior region, marginalized region. And when the protest started to uh, to be uh, to disseminate and transfer to other uh, close regions like the interior in the west and um uh, it was like uh, something shocking for me when i saw people uh, bo- people's bodies um, put uh, on the side of a river maybe you saw that on youtube it was like the very shocking for me so i felt like i support these people because they look like me they are from the same background as me uh, they are from interior region, they are poor people, they are jobless, uh, unemployed people, so they are marginalized. So I felt something like, um, yes, I am very uh, supportive for them because they look like me. We started like I was a student uh, at that time doing my master's degree in Manoba University and we started with what we call in Tunisia um, it is like uh, a union for a student and it was very left, leftist so personally I'm not a leftist I'm not from the right I'm just like I'm a human you know so yeah. uh, it was the only uh, place where I can express myself was the union 
So I joined them and we went in, in March and police actually tried to beat us and throw tear gas against us. Mm. At that time, the interior regions were on fire, you see, like all the interior regions were supportive to each other. Each time people die in uh, in a place the other places will uh, uprise and etc would uprise and till that time the uh, tunis the capital where i w- was studying i uh, was in tunis in tunis it was a different picture we didn't have sort of, uh, the same uh, protest like the interior regions uh, had. For example, my hometown was different than what uh, they had in Tunis. In the interior regions, people went out day and night, day and night. And many of the uh, protesters went out uh, uh, by night. As mentioned by Muntasir, unions played a significant role in mobilizing the Tunisian people against Ben Ali's regime. I asked Dr. Mohamed Saleh Omri about the Tunisian National Trade Union, known as the UGTT, the largest and most influential union in the country. As a Tunisian professor at Oxford University's Oriental Institute, who has written extensively on the Tunisian Revolution, Dr. Omri explained to me the UGTT's specific role in the Tunisian Revolution. Speaking of you know, a social uprising, uh, you argue in, in your articles uh, or in your work, that uh, the Labour Party had a really big mm. play in, in what happened, and that historically it has had a really mm. big play in shaping kind of the political landscape in Tunisia. So I guess just starting from the basics, you know, what is the UGTT and kind mm. of what is its, or what was its connection to the revolution? Mm. Well, this is in a sense a, a peculiar, I mean, first of all, I think each Arab country really has its own specific social history and that's why it's very difficult to explain um, one by reference to the other only Um, and Tunisia is the one I know better so and one component of this uh, of its if you like history of social organization social protests civil um, associations and institutions is the history of a very very strong labor movement um, that is unified, that's very important, but also that has been from its inception political in orientation and involved in other aspects beyond what the, uh, a normal traditional trade union uh, would be involved in. So um, it took part uh, in the uh, national liberation movement, for example, um, it took part in the initial um, uh, post-independence government and it was has always been part of the, the economic policy, social policy, cultural policy of the country through, throughout. Um, obviously, um, to the point that it, it became almost a parallel organization to the one-party system that emerged. Now, the emergence of that one-party system, its consolidation, um, in a sense, made the labor movement serve more or less as the only refuge for people who could not otherwise express themselves in political parties and so on because there was no uh, possibility 
uh, of pluralism in, in Tunisia or there are various attempts that are not, not really serious. So because of the nature of organization, as I mentioned before, that it always had a social vocation and political vocation, but also a, a labor uh, vocation, it served as an umbrella, um, as a refuge for people who couldn't find other ways of expressing themselves. Um, therefore, um, it's diverse in terms of its ideological components and so on, but it has been uh, uh, also structurally uh, present across the country. It has uh, strong offices in the regional level, in the local level, um, so you can see how even spatially people would simply go to it uh, for whatever and, and historically a lot of the major uh, events or uprisings or rebellions that took place in post-independence Tunisia involved the UGTT in one way or another. 1978, big collision with the government, 1984, the bread riots or uprisings, uh, 2008 uh, in a particular region of the country, and come 2011, um, basically most of the demonstrations, even in the regions, were would start from there and people would meet there and so on. So in that sense, I think it played a very important role uh, that prepared it to act as a power broker uh, and as some, a force to reckon with in the post-revolutionary period. As the protest continued and Ben Ali was removed from the presidency, the UGTT and protest organizers began to use culture as a form of expression. Yusra Awirtani, an assistant professor in English, was a master's student at the Higher Institute of Language of Tunis when the January uprisings began. After participating in the protests that eventually removed Ben Ali from power, she became a key organizer of two sit-ins in February of 2011. The sit-ins and protests that followed Ben Ali's removal were to demand a new government and constitution. She recalled the powerful cultural scene that was present at the second sit-in in February 25, 2011, in which tens of thousands of people gathered at the Al-Qasaba Square to demand a new constitution. The square is surrounded by government buildings, and it connects the old city to the new modern Tunis. Yusra discusses the cultural scene at the Al-Qasaba sit-in. Step by step, the second sit-in turned out to be a cultural event. It was like a cultural festival, not just a sit-in, because there were a lot of artists who also joined the sit-in. There were a lot of musicians, um, artists, um, theater people, um, playwrights, um, writers. It was like, you know, it was transformed into cultural, cultural life. I know, like cultural nightlife. <laughs> and uh, I even saw, you know, some popular TV um, figures, uh, actors and actresses who also joined this movement. Uh, and it was actually a great pleasure for all of us. And the security, uh, you know, uh, committee, and I'm receiving people from, you know, all backgrounds, so I can't, you know, their like identity cards, or I can't check, you know, their identity because I remember once, like, uh, this is, I mean, very insignificant, but I still, I mean, remember it. I was, uh, uh, there was a girl, I mean, with like, you know, twisted sport. <laughs> and uh, like, uh, um, I mean, uh, I took it in my head and I said, um, uh, this is not allowed, I mean, and this is in. She said, like, 
you know, like I'm very crazy. Like Aris did it. <laughs> this is like creative. <laughs> I use this like for painting. <laughs> I was like, huh? Work? Use it for painting? <laughs> Okay, there were a lot of, uh, you know, art students. And there were also, yeah, there were also a lot of um, wall drawing. Wall drawing, paintings, and caricatures on walls featuring uh, Bin Nadi and his family. And caricatures, like, about how he left, about how, you know, a street vendor who is, you know, unknown, no one heard of him, how he managed to kick out uh, one of the most powerful dictators in the Arab world. By the way, yes, for the musicians, this is, I mean, was very important because among the sisters, there were um, music students and there were also um, people who were just um, fans and like amateurs of uh, music. And they had instrumental, uh, like instruments, like guitars, uh, oud, um, a violin too. And we used to gather around, you know, like uh, uh, some musicians who performed, you know, pieces of music with a guitar and singing like freedom songs and etc. It was like so, yeah, like uh, I don't know, we brought this to life. Uh, it was, yeah, it was like so amazing. I still remember some songs. Individual um, music performances, like performed by people who were fans of music or music students, etc. Like uh, you know, performing the song with uh, one instrument, etc. And there were also group performances by you know different people and with different instruments. Like you can find all the guitar, etc. In you know, in this little small you know uh, music group, and they performed songs by Marcel Khalifa and other, you know, uh, revolutionary music figures. So, yeah, like, we used to share books, songs, art, all stuff that you can imagine. Walls, uh, the, the sit inside, I mean, walls were turned into a real gallery, a real art gallery. Like, wherever you go, you see, you know, caricature, you see drawings. You see, it, was, it was really amazing. It's actually a pity that uh, right after, you know, the sit-in was dismantled, uh, that they, they, you know, they whitewashed the walls and they, they cleaned them because we wanted to keep them as they were. Coming back to the specific role of the UGTT in the cultural revolution of the transition period in Tunisia, Dr. Omri explains how the UGTT contributed to the cultural scene in post-2011 Tunisia. So then in terms of the most recent revolution that has mm. happened in Tunisia. Um, what are some specific examples of how the UGTT used its, its cultural, pro used cultural mm. production to, mm. you know, 
influence the events and the outcomes. Um, after 2011 or? Yeah, after 2011. One way obviously is actually literally financially support um, festivals, for example, the uh, festival of amateur cinema um, was supported by them. They, the, the union itself organizes festivals around the country in which it supports this kind of um, culture. Its headquarters and local offices are used as places where these people could perform. Um, so these are some of the ways. But obviously after 2011 the scene was much more, um, was literally completely opened up to alternative music to become in a sense mainstream. Uh, so these people who were uh, threatened before, censored, were now able to perform anywhere they want, including on national television and so on. Uh, obviously, alternative music remains uh, not for everyone. Uh, so um, while in the first couple of years of the revolution, these people were able to really take the center stage, obviously, uh, as time went by and things returned to sort of quote-unquote normal, these people returned to playing their music and doing their culture in other places. In addition to the changing music scene itself, we have new uh, forms of performance like rap music emerging. Uh, it was there before 2011, but reinforced after that. This, in general, uh, a liberation of initiative and creativity that you now see everywhere and not necessarily linked to the labor union. It's just about everywhere. An example of the decrease in censorship and spread of cultural creativity across post-revolution Tunisia is the work of poet Fatima ben Mahmoud. In the following poem titled Poems for a Sniper, translated into English by Dal al-Ubaydi, ben Mahmoud criticizes the violence sanctioned by the regime during the uprisings. The sounds of protest were leading the protesters to their graves. Your gaze is unsettling. I will look at you in a different way. When you see me, O oh informant, maybe your gaze will change towards life. In the moment that the bullet was fired in the street, the mother's heart throbbed in the distant house, as if she left. How much of a killer you are, O oh sniper. A deep silence envelops the city. Only the bullet roars through the streets. O oh, you infamous sniper, you have removed so many souls. Today, rest your gun a little. When the night is gone, the sniper is shy of the morning, so he follows the darkness. A winter night. No one dares to encounter the night. Only he guards the city, the sniper's bullets. The night remains unsettling, waiting for the early signs of morning so that he may run far away. The night does not like the friendship of the sniper. The sniper remains concealed, waiting for a bullet that will shed the blood of the martyr, so that his thirst may be quenched. The birds of freedom sleep in my country, within their dreams, assured, the eyes of the sniper watching over them. O oh, sniper, rest your weapon. You will not shatter the voice of freedom. O oh, sniper, Aim your gun towards that gurgling sound. The boy has yet to die. The birds of freedom escape in my country. 
afraid of the steps the sniper takes behind them. As the lover kneels with grace, embracing towards him his weapon, that is the sniper. When the bullet was lodged in the chest of the martyr, the picture of his lover that lives in his heart clearly passed by. Death has no friend except the sniper. Besides the open creativity that was encouraged after the fall of Ben Ali's regime, an intellectual examination of the changing cultural landscape in Tunisia was also encouraged by the UGTT. I remember reading in your um, essay about how you attended as a participant observer in the city of Susa. How do you pronounce it? Susa, yeah. Susa. Um, I think it was a seminar that was hosted by the UGTT. Uh, I thought that was very interesting that. Well, yeah, could you just kind of mm. describe what that seminar was, mm. why you attended, and what was happening? Yeah, that was actually interesting because it was part of um, a series of seminars that UGTT was doing around the country, in which in every seminar they bring, I think, four or five regions, uh, unions from regions, to sit together and discuss uh, the relationship between the labor movement and the culture, culture in general, and what is the new role that UGTT should play and what kind of, um, what role culture itself plays in post-revolutionary period. Um, thinking specifically that one of the main changes in Tunisia after 2011 was um, the uh, open rise of another alternative culture which is mainly Islamist and conservative in nature that developed even into terrorism and so on, um, uh, including ways of control of young people and, and uh, brainwashing and so on. So, so these people said then usually they are, they are people who are involved, either they are part of the union, let's say, of uh, culture uh, or the union of journalists or people who are involved in cinema or theater and so on, because in Tunisia, almost everyone is unionized. This is a key characteristic. So you're likely to find people who are doing something uh, in that field. So these people met in order to debate what uh, 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 role culture should play in a uh, system that is opening up afterwards. It was interesting, yeah, because some talked about literature, some talked about music, some talked about actually uh, cinema, some talked about organizing festivals around the region, around regions each time. Some talked about uh, turning the local offices of the union into not occasional, um, uh, not, not occasional performances of this or that type of music, but as permanent uh, places for cultural activity, like through clubs, for example. And this is happening um, it hasn't really. Um, I kept following it afterwards. I think the la even last week I was uh, listening to a piece of news about the union in a particular area of Tunisia called Janduba is just now opening a, a dance and theatre clubs in the union 
um, and asking for people to, to join them. So there's a lot of thinking, basically. It's part of thinking or rethinking of all the institutions they enrolled in the, in the post-revolutionary period and how they would fight for a particular cultural uh, perspective, how to uh, promote a culture against violence, for example. It has become the main theme. So do, do you think, um, just your personal opinion, that uh, these cultural tools, um, you do, do you think they work mm. in terms of mobilizing people or changing attitudes or, or are they just one piece of mm. a bigger puzzle? Yeah, well obviously I don't think culture alone changes societies um, in, in that sense, uh, but Societies change their ideas. Uh, that's how, how it works. And that brings us to the end of our podcast for this week. If you want to share your thoughts on this topic, we are accepting submissions to our blog at oxirsoc.com. Thank you to all our guests, and as ever, our partners, the University of Kent's Brussels School of International Study, and to Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and to the band Roh for our intro and outro music. <laughs> <laughs>